You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson. Cindy is a past winner of the Lynn Hadley Volunteerism Award from the American Lighthouse Foundation, and she is operations manager of the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hard to believe we're near the end of the open house season at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. Hi, Jeremy. We are winding down at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse after another really successful season, and we'll be wrapping up right around Columbus Day weekend. Yeah, that's right. Summer's almost over. Uh, But today we have a very special edition of Lighthearted. Our guest today is one of the leading maritime historians in the United States, Eric J. Dolan. Cindy, help me tell our listeners about our guest. Sure, Jeremy. Eric J. Dolan grew up near the beaches of New York and Connecticut, and from an early age, he was fascinated by the ocean. He spent many days wandering the shore and collecting seashells and exploring tide pools. He wanted to be a marine biologist, or more specifically, a malacologist, which is a seashell scientist. At Brown University in Rhode Island, he shifted toward the field of environmental policy. He earned a master's degree in environmental management from Yale, then a Ph.D. in environmental policy and planning from MIT. Eric's varied experience included stints as a fisheries policy analyst at the National Marine Fisheries Service, a program manager at the EPA, an environmental consultant stateside and in London, a writing fellow at Business Week, a curatorial assistant at the Mollusk Department at Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology, and as an intern at the National Wildlife Federation, the Massachusetts Office of Coastal Zone Management, and the U.S. Senate. Through it all, Eric maintained a love of writing and telling stories, and that's why he started writing books. Eric has written 13 books and more than 60 articles on American history. His books include Leviathan, the History of Whaling in America, which won a number of awards and was selected as one of the best nonfiction books of 2007 by the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, and the Providence Journal. Fur, Fortune, and Empire, the Epic History of the Fur Trade in America, which was selected by the Seattle Times as one of the top nonfiction books of 2010, When America First Met China, an exotic history of tea, drugs, and money in the age of sale, which was chosen by Kirkus Reviews as one of the top 10 nonfiction books of fall 2012. His most recent book is Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates, published in 2018. But the book we're going to concentrate on today is Brilliant Beacons, a history of the American Lighthouse, published in 2016. Let's read a couple of critical quotes about the book. Ben Shattuck of the New Republic wrote, quote, This magnificent compendium is a paean to the buildings that guided safe passage for the economic prosperity of a young nation with huge, dangerous coastlines. Dolan is a brilliant researcher and seasoned writer, unquote. C. Douglas Kroll of Sea History Magazine called it, quote, A must-read for anyone interested in lighthouses or America's maritime history. This history of American lighthouses is both engaging and enjoyable, whether for academics who will not be disappointed in the thoroughness of the author's research, or for lighthouse history buffs who will enjoy its compelling narrative, unquote. And Jeremy Dontremont, historian for the American Lighthouse Foundation and author of the Lighthouse Handbook New England, called it, quote, the best history of American lighthouses ever written, unquote. 
and I happen to know him personally, and he never lies. <laughs> I had a chance to sit down with Eric J. Dolan at his home in Marblehead, Massachusetts recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today, Eric, and thank you for inviting me into your home. Uh, it's an honor to be here in your inner sanctum, uh, your <laughs> bat cave. <laughs> uh, it's a real honor, surrounded by your, your books and some really interesting artworks and things here. So thank you so much, Eric. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for inviting me to do this. Uh, the books you've written uh, all fall under the broad heading of maritime history in some way, or at least uh, certainly touch on that aspect of history. Lighthouses would seem to be a natural subject for you, but I'm wondering if lighthouses were on your radar for long, and I'm wondering what led you to write the book, uh, Brilliant Beacons. Lighthouses were not on my radar at all. In fact, before I wrote this book, I had only seen a couple of lighthouses, and I really never thought about them much. And unlike uh, almost all of my other books, the topic for this one didn't originate with me. I just finished a book called When America First Met China about the China trade from the American Revolution through the Civil War and I was rooting around for another topic and I had a couple of ideas when all of a sudden my publisher, W.W. Uh, w. Norton, contacted my agent and said, hey, we'd like Eric to write a book on lighthouses. What do you think? And I said, I'm not sure. Uh, since I knew so little about it, I couldn't answer right away. So I said, give me a month. And I went off and I read a ton of books about lighthouses, including some by you, Jeremy Dentremont, which uh, got me excited enough about the topic. I realized that there's a fascinating history about America's lighthouses, and it was much deeper and more complicated than I ever had expected. So that, that was the genesis of the book. I went back, I said, yeah, I'd love to write the book. And I wrote a proposal and then worked on the book for a couple of years. And the book happened. <laughs> uh -huh. It sure did. You did an amazing job. In your books over the years, you've delved into several important, iconic parts of American maritime history besides lighthouses, uh, the fur trade, whaling, the China trade, as you mentioned, piracy. Uh, how does lighthouse history fit into the big picture of maritime history? Do you feel that lighthouses, lighthouse keepers, lighthouse administration played a significant role in our history? Oh, played an enormous role. I wouldn't have done the book if it, if it didn't. Uh, one of the litmus tests for all of my books that tend to focus on American history is I don't want it just to be interesting stories. I want it to have had a significant impact on American history. And with lighthouses, that's absolutely... Uh, the case. And, you know, you mentioned it a couple of my other past books. It's interesting. Uh, a lot of whaling ships throughout the centuries uh, used lighthouses to navigate in and out of port, and they were very helpful to those individuals. A lot of fur traders, especially those who went to the Pacific Northwest, and even those that just traveled along the coast of the American colonies and then the United States delivering furs, depended on lighthouses for their uh, livelihood. Uh, pirates, since my book ends in 1726, pirates probably didn't really rely too much on lighthouses. Maybe uh, Boston Light and a couple of others that were very early entrants into the system. Right. But lighthouses are phenomenally important. When you look at the broad history of America, the way that I look at it in, in, in effect is it's 
so much about commerce. It's so much about making money, especially American history. And if you follow the money and you follow the roots of commerce, you realize that we are still a maritime nation. The vast bulk of all of the goods that come into the United States and leave go via ocean routes. And that was certainly the case back during the great age of sail and even before. So without lighthouses, uh, our commercial history would have been dramatically different, much more deadly, much less successful, and I think, in fact, much less interesting because the lighthouses, uh, it's just, it was such a rich vein of history. I was a little embarrassed and amazed at how little I knew about lighthouses because I've read fairly broadly on uh, American history. So that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> They're incredibly important and you can't, you literally cannot understand American history if you don't understand the role of lighthouses. Yeah, I certainly concur with everything you just said. And I, my next question, I think you just uh, at least partly answered it, but uh, you admittedly were not an expert on lighthouses before you began your research for Brilliant Beacons. Uh, would you say there was much that surprised you, and what would what was the most surprising aspect of lighthouse history for you? Uh, the most surprising was the sheer number of lighthouses. If you had asked me before I started working on this book how many lighthouses are, were there or are there in the United States, I would have said a couple of hundred. I didn't realize that it was perhaps around 1,500 or maybe even more. It's just absolutely amazing and that there are lighthouses in the Great Lakes. I never thought about that. So, And also the fact, another thing that really fascinated me were the role of lighthouse keepers, not just the men, but the women. Mm. And the fact that there are female lighthouse keepers, so many of them, and assistant lighthouse keepers, and uh, their role at a time when women barely worked outside of the house, much less having jobs that were so incredibly important. And uh, from what I read in the history, which was almost hard to believe, is that a lot of women lighthouse keepers were paid the same rate as their male counterparts, which is quite unusual during that uh, era. So there are so many things. Oh, to answer that question, it's almost every single page of the book has some piece of information on it that fascinating me. Like, I had no idea the lighthouses played a role in the American Revolution, or that they played such a critical role in the Civil War. Absolutely. I just, it, it was, it blew me away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in your book, you, uh, you detail the politics of uh, American Lighthouse Administration uh, through the first half of the 1800s, during the period when Stephen Pleasanton uh, <laughs> was in charge of the Treasury Department and Winslow Lewis held a monopoly for providing the lighting equipment, uh, despite the availability of the superior Fresnel lens mm -hmm. uh, invented in France uh, just about 200 years ago. Then you uh, had the important report by Congress by Winslow Lewis's nephew, IWP Lewis, mm -hmm. and you wrote uh, about that in your book. It's a very dramatic and very fascinating story. Uh, did you see it as a story of heroes and villains as you wrote about it? Uh, any comment <laughs> on, on that whole thing? You couldn't help but see it in terms of heroes and villains, even though it's hard to vilify people when you understand the context of how they were operating and what the situation was that was facing them. But that tale of Winslow Lewis, of Pleasanton, of IWP, of all the congressmen who were involved, of the Lighthouse Board report in 1852, all of those things in the role of France and England and 
uh, Augustine Jean Fresnel, the Fresnel lens, just all of those stories. It was Shakespearean in terms of its scope. And Stephen Pleasanton, we only have one image of him, and he looks like a real sourpuss. He looks like Scrooge. He looks like Scrooge, and he was in many senses. He was a real stick in the mud. He represented what I would consider to be the worst aspects of a bureaucrat. He didn't have an imagination. He didn't accept counterfacts to try to change his view, and he just went along this track, and he dug in and tried to protect himself, Winslow Lewis, and the system that the two of them had cobbled together, despite the growing evidence that our system of lighthouses, and especially the illumination, not to mention uh, the construction of the the towers themselves, were mediocre. And the fact that... uh, <laughs> that Winslow Lewis's nephew, uh, IWP, is the one that launches the attack is just fascinating. But the villains were not only uh, Winslow Lewis and Stephen Pleasanton, they also were many congressmen who mm-hmm. failed to look at the plain facts and take responsibility for securing our maritime and commercial traffic, which is so increasingly important to America at the time. So it was a phenomenal story. You did a good job of covering it in your book, for sure. Of course, uh, I think you'd agree, and this uh, comes out in, in all your all the books you've written, it's the human stories that bring history to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the case of lighthouses, that's primarily the stories of keepers and their families, maybe also the stories of the building of some of the lighthouses, but I'd say mostly the, the stories of keepers and their families. In particular, what stories of lighthouse keepers really stood out for you as you were writing the <laughs> The book. Again, it's hard to pick favorites, but I'd have to put at the top of the list the one that most other lighthouse aficionados would also place there, and that's Ida Lewis. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ida Lewis's story, not only because the fact that she was a woman in what had tended to be a man's job for many years, but her personality and her intersection with the era of American history was just fascinating. Here's this woman, unassuming, wanted to do her job, took over for her dad, ultimately, and did all these rescues. And she was perfectly happy not to have any fame. But then in 1869, when the New York Tribune did this uh, really dramatic story about some of her early rescues, she became one of the most famous people, not to mention women, in the United States. And having that fame thrust upon her and how she comported herself, which was in a very uh, professional and respectful manner, despite all of the people wanting to come into her life. At one point, 10,000 people visited Lime Rock Lighthouse during a summer just to catch a glimpse of Ida Lewis. They had July 4th was Ida Lewis Day one year in Newport. And she really was on the cusp of when American magazines and newspapers were really taking off. And they were looking for these exciting slice-of-life stories, larger-than-life stories. And, you know, England had Grace Darling. Now we had Ida Lewis. And she was one of the first people to be hounded by the paparazzi of the day. They came and they took, uh, you know, photogravures of her and Negarotypes, and they wanted a piece of her. I mean, Ulysses S. Grant came to Newport to visit her, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, a lot of famous people of the day. And I just think it was great that she stuck to her job. She didn't cash in on her fame. I'm not sure how she would have done it at that time. 
But uh, and up until the very end, the early 1900s, she was still saving people. Mm -hmm. And then when she died, she had a funeral worthy of a head of state. So I really loved her story, her heroism. But not only the heroism saving people from drowning, but how she comported herself right. in the face of a virtual media hurricane or storm. Uh, another famous hero keeper that I really liked writing about was Marcus Hanna at the Cape Elizabeth Lighthouse. Not only was he a war hero during the Civil War, getting the Congressional Medal of Honor, but when he saved uh, two of the men on board the Australia that crashed into the rocks off of Cape Elizabeth Lighthouse during a massive snowstorm when he nearly froze to death himself, uh, and then he got the life-saving medal, as did Ida Lewis, for that. It, that was just a compelling, exciting, pulse-pounding story to recount. The story of Annie Bell Hobbs, the little girl on Boone Island Lighthouse who was pining for life on the mainland and yes. writing a little story about it that appeared in uh, a magazine at the time. Yes. That was a great story. The stories about the lonely lighthouse keepers, some of whom took their lives, some of whom went crazy. Uh, the I can't, Judson and Nigren at the Whale, Whale Back Lighthouse. Alan, actually. And, was oh, Alan, yeah. yeah. You write so much about these people. You write it a couple of years <laughs> yeah. ago. You forget I only know stuff. that because I talk about that story in my lectures all the okay. time. It's an incredible story. But, but that was, you know, these people going after each other and trying to kill each other, and then the the uh, the officials, the law enforcement uh, stepping in. That was an amazing story. Yes. Uh, almost every single lighthouse keeper I read about had a story worthy of telling, and perhaps that's why so many individual lighthouses have great books uh, about them. Mm -hmm. I loved. Uh, Emily Fish, Emily Maitland Fish, yes. at the Point Pinos Lighthouse, the socialite keeper, and her husband, Melanchthon, the doctor who died suddenly of a heart attack, left her with a lot of money, but she wasn't sure what she was going to do. And then all of a sudden, through her brother-in-law, she finds out about the keeper position, and she goes and becomes the keeper with her manservant, uh, Q, a Chinese gentleman that she got from when she was over in China. And she has these soirees out at the lighthouse, and she's got a little herd of black poodles that run around. And then she lived through the 1906 earthquake, and that was yeah. a fascinating story. And then it's even neat that her daughter, Juliet Nichols, became a became a lighthouse uh, keeper as well at the Angel Island Lighthouse, right, in San Francisco. There are so many great stories about uh, lighthouse keepers. Uh, it was it was really funny. You're right. The human stories are the ones that bring it uh, bring it to life. Uh, the story is not only about hardships suffered, deaths that unfortunately occur, uh, like the keeper at uh, Cape well Cape Farrell. Well, he didn't die. The guy at Cape Farrell on Lighthouse who got so depressed he pitched himself off the. The, the cliffs and the other keepers went down and gathered him up and brought him to the mainland hospital where he survived but was ultimately fired by the lighthouse establishment. And then there's the very tragic story of Scotch Cap Lighthouse in Unimac yes. Island that is basically swept away with a 100-foot tsunami wave and the five keepers there who unfortunately lost their lives. So I can go on and on, but that's one of the things that is most compelling because at every single lighthouse... Not only are there so many lighthouses, but every single lighthouse has multiple keepers, and each of them has a story that is fascinating for one reason or another. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's good for people like us uh, that there's so many of these stories to tell. 
besides stories of lighthouse keeping, uh, probably the other biggest source of drama would be the stories of building some of these lighthouses. And you tell some of those stories in the, in the book as well. Yeah. Any of those stories uh, of building lighthouses that stand out for you? Yeah, mine it's Ledge Lighthouse, not only because it's uh, close to where I live in Marblehead, Massachusetts, relatively close, but it's such a dramatic story that plays out over a number of years. You have the first Minot's Ledge Lighthouse, which came into being an iron pile lighthouse in 1849. And then it only lasts for about two years. It gets knocked over by a nor'easter that came barreling down the coast. And two of the keepers, unfortunately, lost their lives. There's a very fitting monument to them in Cohasset that you can go visit. Uh, so that was dramatic enough that uh, there was this lighthouse built on a ledge that's out at sea about a mile. Most of the time is underwater. It was very difficult to build an iron pile lighthouse, but then it gets knocked over and they realize they need a lighthouse in this location to help people who are coming up from the south to go into Boston Harbor or leaving Boston Harbor and going south. So they decide to build another lighthouse. And that tale, which played out over many years, finally finishing just as the Civil War was about to erupt, building this 114-foot solid granite block lighthouse is just an amazing tale at a time when they didn't have electricity, when they didn't have power tools. They had to transport these three to five ton blocks of granite a mile offshore, work mainly during low tide or extreme low tides, have to deal with the vicious and mighty Atlantic had to create sort of coffer dams, in a sense, around Minot's Ledge, the rock, Minot's Ledge, to keep it dry, to work on the lower courses of the lighthouse, and then building higher and higher and higher. Just amazing. And that lighthouse has withstood the worst that the Atlantic could give it for, uh, you know, 170 years. I don't know, a lot of years. <laughs> Go back to 18, 1860. Years, yeah. 160 years. And uh, just amazing. And the story about the I Love You light, of course, the uh, the flash of the, the flash pattern of the Fresnel lens that is in uh, Minot's Ledge Light uh, is just fascinating. And a lot of people, when I was giving talks on the book, a lot of people in different parts of the country had heard that story because there's something so human about it, even though that the lighthouse establishment did not pick the flash pattern to <laughs> to <laughs> sort of impress some shoreside Romeo with it being an I Love You lighthouse, you know, 143. But it's a great story nevertheless. And of course, building Tillamook Lighthouse out off of Oregon, building St. George's Reef Lighthouse off of California, the fact that that lighthouse, uh, both of them took lives, the fact that the St. George's Reef Lighthouse cost about $775,000 to build over the span of about a decade, the most expensive lighthouse ever built, and just the punishing conditions out on Tillamook Rock and on St. St. George's Reef and the fact that they were able to build these uh, very complex lighthouses from an engineering perspective. And then the lighthouses were such a great benefit to people traveling along the Pacific, which can often be as merciless as the Atlantic. So I thought that those were great stories as well. But almost, again, here, it's like every lighthouse keeper, almost every lighthouse to build it is an engineering feat. Mm -hmm. Building lighthouses on land that are near, uh, you know, dunes or uh, in tough locations is, is just as amazing. Building Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, uh, incredibly tall lighthouse with over a million 
bricks and then moving it at a later point back away from the shore 1500 feet inland that was an amazing feat of engineering so again you with lighthouses you have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to information yes (laughs) once again i I concur (laughs) yeah uh were there any particular research challenges you had to overcome as you worked on the book yeah, here I'm starting to sound like a broken record. The <laughs> biggest research yeah. challenge was uh, establishing the narrative arc of the book and deciding which stories I couldn't tell. Because right. for each chapter, I found more stories that I didn't include in the book, and I had to decide which ones not to include. And uh, <laughs> I realized that could get me in trouble because in the book, there are only about 160 lighthouses that are mentioned by name. And I gave talks at a lot of different places that have lighthouses, yeah. and I got some real. <laughs> why didn't you mention? Why such didn't and such Why that? didn't you mention such and such? And the best story of that was when I gave a talk up in uh, Newburyport at uh, a bookstore there, and yeah. there's a woman sitting right in the front row. And I'm about to launch into my talk. It's before we're sort of chatting. She goes, "Do you mention anything about Plum Island Lighthouse in your book?" And I said, "No." And she goes, why not? And I told her, well, it's a narrative arc. There are thousands, more than 1,000 lighthouses. You can't include every story. And then she looked at me and she goes, well, I'm not going to buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> so I did get a couple of people writing to me or telling me directly, I'm really sad that you didn't mention the yeah. lighthouse my great-grandfather worked in or yeah, something like yeah. that. I've experienced similar reactions. So. Yeah. You can't, you know, there's too many. You can't please everyone. No, you can't. You can't. Uh, But as you know, uh, I wasn't kidding when I, uh, the quote that's for me on the back cover that your book is the best overview of American Lighthouse history. You you can't include it all. So all you can do is. Thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And I meant it. Uh, Working on Brilliant Beacon served as an introduction to the world of lighthouse preservation for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what is your impression of that world? And I I, I ask a little hesitantly because I am part of that world. No, I'm I'm absolutely amazed and totally impressed by the work that people have done to save and protect these historical icons, these sentinels of the coast. I visited a lot more lighthouses after I wrote the book than I did before I had written the book. And I was always incredibly impressed at the small and sometimes quite sizable museums that are associated with lighthouses, the very dedicated people who work there, volunteer their time, and also work at the lighthouses. I really was uh, blown away by the drive and determination of these people to not let an important part of our history go by the wayside. And then I was also fascinated to learn the federal government's involvement uh, through the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act and that whole mechanism for allowing nonprofit groups to oversee lighthouses and their preservation. And then if nobody steps forward, allowing individuals to actually purchase lighthouses and those made for some of the most fascinating stories. So I've been impressed by the organizations that get their lighthouses for a dollar, or maybe they got them a long time ago, even before that act and are preserving them. I'm fascinated by the people who have purchased lighthouses and turned them into bed and breakfasts, which enable them to not only make a living, but also to have people come stay at a lighthouse and really absorb in a very visceral way 
the history of that lighthouse. And I'm amazed by the people with very deep pockets who have chose to purchase lighthouses on their own, even if they're not lighthouses that can be visited by the general public. The fact that they're still maintained, still out there, is a testament to the important of these, the importance of these structures in our history. So I have nothing but admiration for the people who have chosen to work on the preservation of lighthouses. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you kind of a part two to that question, and you've maybe kind of already at least partly answered this, but do you feel optimistic about the future of lighthouse preservation? And in particular, uh, do you feel optimistic about the preservation of the more out-of-the-way isolated lighthouses, the offshore ones that the public can't visit? Yeah, I am optimistic, but my optimism has clear limitations. Uh, There are far too many lighthouses for enough people and organizations to step forward to protect them all. So a lot of them, like the ones the Lighthouse Digest puts on the doomsday list, they are ultimately going to crumble away or something. They're they're just not going to become part of our cultural heritage in the way that you might like them to be. The ones that are more out of the way, yeah, they're the ones that are probably in the greatest danger of being left behind. But for lighthouses that are near major cities or are particularly iconic, I think the future looks very bright for organizations to step forward to take them over or for individuals who have deep pockets to purchase them. Anyway, let me ask you what you're working on uh, presently. Well, uh, this very moment while we are talking, uh, my editor at LiveRight, which is part of Norton, is probably getting ready to send me the edits on my latest book, which I handed in about three months ago, two months ago. It's on a, it's a, a narrative history of America's hurricanes from Christopher C- Columbus up through the present. And talk about needing to be selective in which hurricanes or which topics you focus on. That was a bear of a book going over 500 years. No more difficult than the Lighthouse book, but of a similar level of difficulty. So that mm. book will be coming out next uh, June, in June 2020. And I think uh, people who love lighthouses will also be interested in that book because hurricanes have certainly done their numbers on lighthouses over time. And my next book, I'm not sure. I've got an idea I like. My agent likes it. Haven't pitched it to my publisher yet. Uh, but if it goes through, uh, it'll. It, it has a maritime flavor to it as well. And I'd like to add one thing that is not something we went over, but I think is really important. I gave a lot of talks on this book, Brilliant Beacons. And I was surprised a couple of the talks I gave to lighthouse organizations or next to lighthouses were some of the worst attended talks I gave. And I met a lot of people who love lighthouses, and there's this whole huge audience out there. And I know that a lot of them are totally absorbed by the history, really knowledgeable about their passion, their hobby, collecting lighthouses. But I also, and I I want this to come across the right way, I also knocked into a number of people who I felt their level of interest in the lighthouse either only stuck with one lighthouse that is in their community or was relatively shallow. You know, they wanted to buy lighthouse uh, statuettes or uh, things to put on their, you know, refrigerator or little tchotchkes, as I call them. But their knowledge of the history of the lighthouses was uh, not particularly deep. 
And I think they're really missing out because I've been a collector of things my whole life. And when I get into them, I go beneath the surface. And the more I learn about the history of the things I'm interested in, the richer my experience the more becomes. Fun it becomes. The I more fun it becomes. You. So I would just urge anyone who is not already deeply steeped in the history of lighthouses in general, but loves lighthouses and has a lighthouse passport and goes and visited lighthouse, visits lighthouse to buy books, not just mine, Jeremy's books, other books, and really do a deep dive because your enjoyment of your hobby will be much greater than otherwise would be the case. But uh, that being said, I met a lot of people who have visited a lot of lighthouses and are more knowledgeable than I am about them. So mm -hmm. I think that's a great thing. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I started photographing lighthouses back in the 80s. And then I, I it opened up a, a, a window for me or a door into into history. And I when I started realizing how fascinating the human history was, that's when I really got hooked. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I would hope that would happen for, for a lot of people. But I, I, I understand what you're saying. And I, I agree. And but if we could back up for a moment, yep. you uh, talked about your, your upcoming book on hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And if we could link the subjects of lighthouses and hurricanes, I'd like to possibly conclude by maybe having you read a, a oh, short okay. passage from your book, Brilliant Beacons, oh, sure. that actually talks about uh, a, uh, a lighthouse in Connecticut in the hurricane of 1938, the worst yes. hurricane in recorded New England history. Yes. Would you uh, honor us by reading uh, a passage about the Saybrook Breakwater Lighthouse in the hurricane Absolutely. of 38? Absolutely. That would be great. Thank you, Eric. Okay. Everyone who lived through the hurricane of 1938 experienced how incredibly fast the weather conditions changed, including Sidney Z. Gross, the head keeper at the Saybrook Breakwater Lighthouse, a spark plug structure in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, at the mouth of the Connecticut River, where it flows into Long Island Sound. Just before two in the afternoon on September 21st, Gross was looking out on the perfectly calm waters of the river and the sound. At two, a slight southeast breeze picked up, and within 15 minutes it became so hazy that Gross and the assistant keeper, S.L. Bennett, turned on the fog signals. Forty-five minutes later, at three, the wind was blowing so hard that neither Gross nor Bennett could open the door to go outside to secure items around the lighthouse. Each time they attempted to venture out, the wind forced them back in. By 3.30, the churning waters had almost reached the platform surrounding the tower's main level. They had already washed away the metal bridge to the breakwater. At four, the entire platform was ripped from the tower, carrying off the lighthouse's rowboat. At 4.30, one tank holding 1,500 gallons of kerosene and another with 600 gallons of oil both went sailing into the abyss. Thirty minutes later, a wave crashed through one of the windows of the engine room and sent glass flying, a shard of which left a gash on one of Bennett's hands. When the engines which powered the fog signal were doused with tons of water, they shorted out and the signal's horns were silenced. Gross hooked up a battery to the signal, but no sooner had the signal started blaring than the battery switch burst into flames, forcing him to disconnect the battery and put out the fire. The horns fell silent once more. An hour later at six, the battery storage shed broke open, and all the batteries inside, as well as the outboard motor, disappeared into the ocean's maw. By this time, the water had risen to the second level of the tower and was flooding into the hall through a broken window. Groats later recalled, I certainly did not expect to see another sunrise, as the whole structure was shaking under the violent pounding. At dusk, 
Gross entered the lantern room to light the light. But since there was no electricity, he disconnected the electric lamp and replaced it with an IOV lamp. The fourth-order Fresnel lens was shaking so violently that Gross thought it would fall to the floor and shatter at any moment. The lens held, but it was only as good as its light source. And here, Gross faced another problem. Each time he put a new mantle into the lamp, it collapsed due to the vibrations. So he went back another generation in lighting technology and swapped out the IOV lamp for one that used a wick and burned kerosene. He nursed the lamp all night to make sure it didn't go out. When daylight came at last, what we saw, Gross said, seemed more like a bad dream than reality. There was nothing around the tower. Everything was gone, except the battery house, and even that was badly out of shape. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for, for reading that. If that doesn't make uh, our listeners want to go out and uh, buy or order online uh, Brilliant Beacons, I don't know what will. Brilliant Beacons is available, uh, Eric, uh, from uh, bookstores and online booksellers, certainly, Amazon yes. and many other online booksellers. Yes. It's available in hardcover and softcover, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And, and your uh, more recent book, t- tell us the name of the piracy book. Oh, Black Flags, Blue Waters, the Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates, which uh, came out in September of 2018. And I just learned actually pretty much today that Black Flags, Blue Waters was selected as a finalist in the Boston Book Authors Club Annual Book Award and also a must-read book selected by the Massachusetts Center for the Book for books published in 2018. So that was a nice feather in the cap for that book. And uh, it's a lot of fun reading, too, I think. <laughs> Congratulations. That's fantastic. And do we have a title for the, uh, the Hurricane book yet? Yes, it's called uh, A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. Great. Well, I'll look forward to that. And again, thank you so much, Eric. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to uh, have a chance to talk with you in uh, your inner lair here, (laughs) the inner sanctum. Thank you so much. It's really been fun. Well, thank you, you, Jeremy. I really appreciate being asked. That's it for this episode of Lighthearted. Thanks to everyone out there who works for Lighthouse Preservation. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please tell your friends. Please share it on social media, review it on Apple Podcasts or other sites. Anything you can do to spread the word is much appreciated. Thank you to today's guest, maritime historian Eric J. Dolan. Check out his website at ericjdolan.com, and you can find his book, Brilliant Beacons, along with his other books at bookstores and online booksellers. And as always, thank you for listening and keep a good light. Go